Hello and welcome to People in Profit on France 24. I'm Charles Pellegrin. Coming up this week, will a sense of urgency prevail at COP28? The climate talks in the United Arab Emirates will bring to the fore once again the challenges of financing the world's move to sustainable development. We'll talk with the vice president of the world's second largest multilateral development bank, the AIIB. And the mother of all bottlenecks, an El Nino-caused drought, is forcing the Panama Canal's authorities to reduce the number of ships that can use the waterway every day with a ripple effect on global trade. And Japan celebrates 100 years of whiskey-making prowess by scaling up its supply for an increasingly thirsty global demand. Well, COP28, the UN's global climate conference, where countries come together in a bid to reduce carbon emissions and avert catastrophe, kicks off this week in the United Arab Emirates. Whether it's making agriculture greener, phasing out fossil fuels, or creating a loss and damage fund, the road to net zero needs financing. This is where multilateral development lenders often step in. Institutions like the World Bank or the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, based in Beijing, which has sent an expanded delegation to the UAE. Well, the vice president of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, Sir Danny Alexander, uh, joins us now from COP28 in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, thank you for being with us. Um, the, the AIIB has stressed the need to triple climate finance within the next five years. In concrete terms, what will these uh, new uh, unlocked AIIB funds actually go towards? So they will go towards the infrastructure that is needed to support the climate transition in emerging markets in, in, in Asia and other parts of the world. That means uh, AIB will grow its investments in renewable energy, things like solar power, wind power, uh, hydropower. Uh, electricity transmission infrastructure that's necessary to make renewable powered systems work uh, efficiently. Um, also adapting other sectors such as electric mobility, EVs, um, uh, urban public transport, subway systems. These are all part of, uh, of, the, of the climate transition. But then the other dimension of it is about climate adaptation and resilience. Every single one of our investments needs to have built into it resilience to everything that climate change can throw at us over the next few decades. Um, the AIIB's objective is uh, for 50% of its loan portfolio to be uh, climate investments, uh, I think, by 2025. Um, how do you define what classifies as a climate investment? And um, does it completely exclude investment uh, uh, in fossil fuel projects? So you're right. We have the goal of half of our investments being climate finance. And that, that covers both climate change mitigation, projects that reduce carbon emissions, and also climate change adaptation projects that protect people from the effects of, of, of climate change. There's a common definition that's used by all of the multilateral development banks, by AIB, by the World Bank, by the European Investment Bank and so forth. And actually, as a, as a community of multilateral institutions, we do an annual report on our total climate financing. As it happens, AIB already achieved the 50% goal last year. So we're looking to build up further how can we uh, you know, further strengthen our climate investments, improve the impact and, and support projects which are, uh, which are impactful, which are demonstrative. Um, we don't finance coal, we don't finance oil. Um, we can finance gas, but only under very specific circumstances where it's clearly part of a, of a country's uh, transition. 
And our big focus in the energy sector is on renewable energy because that's the key to uh, reducing emissions and powering growth, uh, clean growth in, in, in Asia and beyond. And you're, um, you say you don't finance coal, uh, but there's a bit of a, a, a paradox here because your most influential member, China, uh, continues to build coal power plants uh, domestically to feed its growing energy needs. How do you reconcile the AIIB's mission uh, to finance so what you say is climate resilience on one hand while its biggest member continues to contribute to, to growing emissions? Well, one of, the, one of the challenges, I think, for many countries, and this is reflected in the discussions at, at COP, is about how to go about phasing down, phasing out uh, coal and, 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 um, and, and other very polluting energy, uh, energy sources. And that's a challenge in, in many parts of the world. Even in Europe, um, you know, there is still coal-fired uh, uh, energy uh, in, in, in use. And so the managed phase-out of coal is a big issue for financing the, the, the transition. I mean, you can also look at the major countries in Asia, both China and India are also deploying renewables at the greatest scale anywhere in the world. And that deployment is also driving down costs, which helps to make renewables more affordable for others. I think what we see our role as being is our members have commitments to transition to net zero by the middle of the century. And so what's important is to map out that transition and for us to finance the infrastructure and finance the work that can help them to achieve those goals uh, as, as effectively and efficiently as possible. Well, another way to finance resilience to climate change is setting up a, a loss and damage fund where historical emitters can fund the recovery and protection of populations that are most vulnerable to climate catastrophes. Uh, a compromise appears to have been reached and a blueprint looks like it will be adopted during this COP, but there are no actual set targets for how much money needs to be uh, dispersed. Why has this process been so complicated? All of these negotiations, when you're trying to set up a new global platform, are incredibly complicated because it also reflects a big political debate about uh, responsibility for, 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 for climate change, and especially for those many developing countries who have contributed almost nothing to emissions over the years, who are now really at the, at, at the sharp end of, of uh, feeling the effects of climate change, sometimes in an existential way. Hopefully the discussion now can move on from can they have a fund and how should it be set up to how is it going to be used to protect people in vulnerable countries. So, Danny Alexander, you are the vice president of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us uh, on France 24. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's perhaps one of the world's most famous shortcuts, the Panama Canal. Every year, over $270 billion worth of goods transit through the waterway. But that figure could be much lower this year. A drought is forcing authorities to reduce the number of daily ship crossings in order to conserve water, leading to a massive container ship traffic jam. Well, Yuka Roye from France24's business desk joins us now. Hi, Yuka. Just Hi, uh, how many uh, ships can actually go through the canal right now? Well, first of all, let's just have a look at just how important the canal is for global trade. The 82-kilometer waterway connects the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans, massively reducing sailing time for cargo ships. Uh, it serves more than 180 maritime routes. 
and uh, connecting 170 countries and reaching almost 2,000 ports. An estimated 6% of global trade passes through the Panama Canal. But a historic drought with October's rainfall uh, being the lowest since 1950 has prompted the canal's operators to reduce, gradually reduce the number of maximum daily crossings. It's limited to 24 today and will drop to 18 by February. That's down 54% from last year's average. And the effect on global trade? Well, dozens of ships are actually currently queuing up to enter the canal and the waiting time could be as long as three months. Now, some have diverted already to longer routes. All this means delays for deliveries of goods ahead of the busiest shopping season and could also affect everything from car parts to food to medical supplies. It's also led to increased shipping costs uh, and could result in price increases on consumer goods. Some in the industry also worry uh, that the, the current crisis could exacerbate a freight recession caused by higher fuel costs and weaker demand. The United States will be the most affected as it accounts for more than 70% of cargo traffic passing through the canal. And whether this drought is related to climate change or not, this has really put the global shipping industry uh, under and, and, its foot, and its carbon footprint under the spotlight. Well, Charles, the transport sector is the second largest carbon polluter worldwide, accounting for over a fifth of global CO2 emissions. International shipping alone uh, is responsible for nearly 3% of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the International Maritime Organization has set the target for reducing carbon-2 emissions per transport work by at least 40% by 2030 and 70% by 2050 relative to 2008. To do this, ship owners are, are being encouraged to invest more into new technologies such as fossil-free fuels. Yukaroye, thank you very much. Well, Japanese whiskey is celebrating a milestone this year, the 100th anniversary of market leader Suntory's first distillery in Yamazaki in 1923. Since then, the country has introduced innovations in the market, winning several prestigious awards along the way. Now, with its popularity soaring, the country has become the fourth largest whiskey producer globally, with prestigious brands commanding top dollar. Catherine Viet has more. Japan's Shizuoka region is home to one of the leaders in the country's new wave of craft whiskey makers. Shizuoka Distillery's unique claim to fame, it uses cedar wood from the nearby forest to heat its whiskey still instead of using gas or coal like its competitors. Founder Taiko Nakamura was inspired to start the distillery after a trip to Scotland in 2016. I could see that this small distillery in the mountainous countryside was selling whiskey globally. And I thought I would also like to make my own whiskey and sell it around the world. As Japan celebrates a century of whiskey making, the industry has rapidly expanded, with more than 100 licensed distilleries in the country, double the number from just a decade ago. And sales, too, have exploded. Between 2011 and 2016, sales of Japanese whiskey increased by nearly 48 percent. Japan is also the fourth largest whiskey producer globally. Once considered an inferior copycat of scotch, the surge in popularity can be traced back to around 2008, when Japanese whiskey started to rack up international awards leading to demand outpacing supply and an equivalent rise in prices. 
Industry leaders like Suntory and Nika responded by investing billions to upgrade their distilleries and ramp up production. For drinkers of the new wave of Japanese whiskies, the proof is in the taste. It has a wine-like, slightly fruity taste after drinking it, so I think it's really delicious and goes down easy. The challenge now is to make sure the newer products live up to the quality of established brands. And that's all for this week. You can watch our previous shows on France24.com or listen by searching People and Profit on the podcast platform of your choice. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us on social media. In the meantime, thanks for watching and stay tuned.